Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to His name. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Let us just rejoice in who you are. Thank you for bringing us here this morning. Lord, may you be glorified in all that we do. We invite you to join with us as we, your people, come with one voice, with one heart, to say that you are King. We ask that you would speak to us this morning and strengthen us to hear, to listen, and obey. This morning for pastor's prayer, I typically take time during the week and the weekend to write out a pastor's prayer as my heart for my congregation and for you. And I I think of you and I think of myself and I what is it that we could use as a church? So I try to do that. And this week, I came up blank. I just, Lord, what is it? And I had all these things, and I started to put them, and nothing came to peace until eventually I just kind of considered Psalms 40. And so I'm going to read that this morning as our pastor's prayer. It's a great verse. It's a Psalm of David. And he writes in Psalm 40, where David said, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who've gone astray after the lie. I pray that for us. He goes on to say, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, and your thoughts towards us none can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of you, yet there are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And I join with him as a pastor desiring that we as a church would do so likewise. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those who be turned back and brought to dishonor, who delight in my hurt, let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, Aha and Aha. 
I believe there's probably many in our service this morning whose sentiment is the same, who feels their back against the wall. But he finishes off, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help, my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. And we can pray this in the name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen. What a great God we have. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Galatians chapter 3. We've been speaking of the great debate as we ask, who are God's children? Are Gentile believers members of God's family? Are they included into the covenant? Do they receive the blessings of Abraham? In this third chapter of Galatians, we've seen Paul's defense of the gospel that both Gentiles and Jews are included in salvation by grace through faith. The Judaizers have argued that only those who have been circumcised are members of God's family and are blessed. Paul, however, has contended that those who have the Spirit are children of God and receive the blessings of Abraham. As you're looking there in Galatians chapter 3, as you just peruse the first five verses that we looked at several weeks ago, Paul shared that they belong to God's people because they have the Spirit, as the Spirit is the true sign of the blessings of God and Abraham, not circumcision. In verses 6 through 14, he's defending the view that they are members of God's family, as he stated three truths as we saw last week. And the first one, remember that Abraham was justified by faith and not through works. This is the truth that Galatians become part of the family of God and receive the blessings when they believed as Abraham believed. It was also God's plan to include the Gentiles. And the third thing that we see is that all believers, including the Gentiles, have received the blessing of Abraham and including belonging to the family of God. And as we saw last week, just as a matter of review to set up this week, is that this introduced us to the great doctrine of adoption. And adoption is the act of God whereby He makes us members of His family. We see that in Romans chapter 8 when he says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children and heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. Paul, in defending the view of Gentile membership in God's family, he uses both a positive and a negative argument in 6 through 14. In verses 6 through 9 that we looked at last week, he focused on the positive in understanding that faith is the pathway to the blessings of God. And this week, as we go to verses 10 through 14, he focuses on the negative in that the inheritance to the law leads to a curse. So with that, let's read this. We look at cursed by the law in Galatians chapter 3, 10 through 14. He writes, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a what? Under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But, in verse 12, The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Father, I come humbly before you, asking for you to use my speaking this morning to, uh, as we read and share your word here. I pray that your Spirit will have free reign and that he'll take these words and that he'll put them in deep soil and may they illuminate and enlighten us to what the law is and our standing before you. Lord, I pray that you challenge us and all our presumptions and, and assumptions of Scripture. Lord, I pray that we would see you clearly in your word this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So I want to give you two spiritual truths, especially for those of you who like to keep track of things. There's two spiritual truths that we're going to look at the, this morning. The first one, as you see, is that those who rely on the law are cursed. Those who rely on the law of the curse, and we see that in verses 10 through 12. Remember that the works of the law refer to all the deeds commanded by the law. To obey the law was a mandate from God to the Hebrew children. And I want you to take a moment and turn back to Deuteronomy. It is the fifth book in the Old Testament. So if you go to the cover of your Bible and go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Because in Deuteronomy, I want to read the preceding scripture that Dustin read a little bit earlier. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Turn to that if you would, for those of you who have your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, we read of Moses' instruction to the people. This is when they're getting ready to finally go into the promised land. He writes, Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day that you cross over the Jordan to the land that your Lord, your God, has given you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that your Lord God has given you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. This is the land that he promised back uh, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 15. In chapter 22 and 17 also. In verse 4, And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today. On Mount Ebal, you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stone. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. In other words, don't cut them. Just however shape they're in, just put them right together. And you shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall what? Rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of the law very pain plainly. He says, I want people to understand it. They're going to be able to see exactly what the words are. These stones with the law written on them, were to serve as reminders of what God has commanded all of them to do. And as we read earlier in our scripture reading, all the people were called out to make a verbal pledge to keep the law. And as we ended with the scripture reading of Dustin earlier, it says in verse 27-26, it says we read what happens if they fail to obey all the law. For he says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people again shall say, Amen. They were without excuse. 
And you say, but what about their sons and their daughters and their grandchildren, so on and so forth? Well, they had the stones. That was the purpose of them. They were to point to them and say, this is what we agreed to do. Paul reminds them of this in verse 10. If you're back in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 10, you see that Paul reminds them of this. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by what? All things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul is pointing out that no one can obey the law perfectly. You had to obey all that it did. If you were to fail in one point, you were what? Cursed. You failed. This is evident in Deuteronomy when they are told to make burnt offerings to atone for their sins. The offerings did not take away sins, but temporarily appease the wrath of God against their evil and against their disobedience. That's why Paul can say that it's evident that no one is justified or made right before God by the law. Because one must obey the law perfectly, yet in Romans 3.23 we see that God tells us that there's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, no one can stand right before God because of their good works. That's an amen right there. There's no one that can stand. We may think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs. None of them, as you can read through Genesis, none of them were perfect. They were very imperfect people. Well, let's take those after the law. Was Moses and Aaron perfect? No. The first two high priests uh, of Abraham's sons were not perfect. They died the first day of, of, of worship because they offered strange fire and did not do what God had commanded to do. We can think of David. We could think of Solomon. We can think of Samson and Saul Gideon and Daniel and so on and so forth. Were any of those men perfect? No. No one can do the law perfectly. No one can stand right before God because of their good works. No one can come before God and say, I did all of your law, I did all that you commanded, amen, I stand right before you. This sin, this disobedience, means that we're cursed. And I believe it comes on the screen here, is that because of that, because of that curse, that curse means that we deserve to die as a penalty for sin. We deserve to die as a penalty for that sin. The curse also means that we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. So it's not just annihilation and death, but it's eternal punishment. The curse also means that we're separated from God by our sins. We cannot come before a holy God. And lastly, the curse also meant that we are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. The law was incapable of making anyone right before God. And though it was perfect and holy and righteous and pure, as we saw earlier this morning in Sunday school, the law did not make anyone perfect, holy, and righteous. Paul instead writes that it's only by faith, a trust that God accepts the works of Christ on our behalf, that you and I can be at peace with God. And that's important for us to understand. As the Bible says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me take a moment to give a little commercial. This is what you and I should be doing. God has given us the reconciling work. 
as ambassadors, to share with people, you need to be at peace with God. And I've shared this many times before, and so it's, this should be no uh, surprise to you, is that most people do not know that they are at odds with God. That's what's even sadder. And so we need to show our work is, is cut out for us. We need to let them know that they can have peace with God. This spiritual truth that those who rely on the law are cursed, this spiritual truth causes tension because the law and the faith are incompatible. As he writes in verse 12 of Galatians 3, the law is not of faith. Since the law requires perfect obedience, one must be judged by that standard of perfection. In other words, if you say that I'm going to live by the law, then you will be judged by that law. And since no one can obey perfectly, that person who continues to trust in the work of the law is cursed to face the wrath of God, for it cannot take away that curse. That's the tension that Paul is finding. As the Judaizers continue to try to influence and drag the people back into a different covenant, into a different relationship with God, they're saying, no, you must be circumcised, you must follow the dietary laws, you must do the law. What they're doing is dragging people back under the curse. The very curse that we see that God is setting them free. That's what everyone needs today, by the way. Everyone is under the curse. Many times we think it's just the Jewish people. Oh, we're all under that curse. We all find ourselves falling under the penalty of death and God's wrath and bondage to sin. However, Paul now moves to the second truth I'd like to share with you. And that's the heart of the good news of the gospel as we go on to verse 13. And the second point that we're going to see is that those who rely, though, on the cross of Christ are blessed. Those who rely on the law are what? Cursed. But those who rely on the cross of Christ are blessed. You see, those who rely on the cross of Christ are blessed because Christ redeemed believers from the law's curse by becoming a curse. For us. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 23, 20, 21, 23 in this passage when he says, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. What a strange phrase. And then applies it to Christ. But what you must remember in Deuteronomy 21, 23 is that after a criminal was executed, they would be hung on a tree publicly to serve as a warning to others. It could be hanging from a noose, tied up to a tree, or even on the cross. The Romans killed Jesus on the cross, as you might remember. And that was a punishment that was reserved for the most heinous of crimes in the Roman law, such as thievery and robbery, rebellion and treason. In the same way, Jesus was publicly humiliated as a criminal. The Bible tells us in that way, Jesus became a curse. For us. You'll see 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2, 24 tells us that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, He says, we have been healed. In 1 Peter 3.18, he writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Amen? What is he telling us here? Is the spiritual truth that Jesus is the answer to the curse. For all who rely on the law is cursed. But Jesus is the answer that we are all under. And the only way to remove that curse is by God's redeeming work. And that's what you and I need. Those who rely on the cross of Christ are also blessed because believers receive Abraham's blessing of the Spirit. In this third chapter of Galatians, as we've been working through it, Paul has pointed out that the Spirit has brought regeneration. In other words, it has given us a new heart. It's it's made us to be alive, to be born again. It has brought conversion in which he's given us repentance and faith. He's also given us justification in which we are made right before God. And as we saw last week, he brought adoption. He brought us into the the family of God. Paul's argument boils down to the fact that the Gentiles have the Holy Spirit as a sign that the blessings of Abraham are members of God's family. They do not need to submit to circumcision nor the law. The good news is, that we are to rely on the cross of Christ rather than works of the law and its sacrifices is because the Old Testament system of animal sacrifices are no longer accepted by God as a payment for continual sins. And so today, even if you are a Jew, and even if you were to do all the animal sacrifices, and if you were able to institute all those things, to go back to that system, you would no longer have a sacrifice or atonement for sin as you had previously. For Christ died once for all. Scripture tells us that Jesus became the sacrifice on our behalf. I'd like you to write these down and read them later. Romans chapter 5, 18 through 19. Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In Romans 6.10, he writes, for, death, he died to, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. See, you and I are in a different history of redemption here. We are no longer needing to go to the, to the priests and to the temples and sacrifice each and every day to stand right before God. So the system of animal sacrifices, even though it no longer exists, even if it did, would find no power. So move ourselves back 2,000 years ago, even when they had a, a, a set of sacrifices. At the time of Christ, as soon as Christ died and rose again, that animal sacrifices was null in effect. There was no power at all to atone for anyone's sin. And see, that's the blessing of Christ. You see, these verses here that we just read, as we see the great exchange, Jesus took upon him our sin and in regard gave us his righteousness. These verses describe what we call the substitutionary atonement, another big word. But that's what Paul is teaching here in Galatians chapter 3, 10 through 14. For we see that Christ died for who? Us. 
Christ redeemed us. Take your Bibles and go back just so you're with me in the same place. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So why? In verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. What we see here is that the atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. If this is true, then what was the purpose of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament? Why did Christ have to die once for all? If that was the case, why didn't God just send Jesus and send the, send the, uh, the sacrifice once for all back then? Well, the system served as a shadow that pointed to the reality of Christ. It was a placeholder. If we turn our attention to the Old Testament for just a moment, we see that God prepared the way for the coming Messiah by giving Israel a system of sacrifices that would foreshadow the ultimate sacrifice that would take place on the cross. Through the law and the prophets, God showed repeatedly the problem of sin and the need for His justice to be satisfied through a substitutionary sacrifice. In others, a substitute, one who would sacrifice in place of another. Why? In order to accomplish the reconciliation that Christ made available. All of this served to teach the Israelites and point them towards Christ. In the Old Testament, we're going to find four characteristics about the sacrifices. If you're taking notes, it's going to be on the screen. The first thing of a characteristic of the sacrifices is that they had to be offered voluntarily. Coercion would negate the idea of this true sorrow and repentance. So even repentance was needed. It was not something that you can just do and say, oh, this is my duty. It had to be offered voluntarily. Secondly, it had to be offered on behalf of the guilty party. In order to account for an individual's sin, he had to pay the cost. The substitution had to be made for him specifically. This is why the Old Testament worshiper was required to place his hands on the head of the animal being sacrificed to symbolically show that the liability for his sin was transferred or placed on the animal victim. The third characteristic is that the sacrifice had to be without defect. Perfect purity was required. An injured or a blemished animal would not be considered acceptable to God. Only, a, only the healthy would be an acceptable offering for the sick. And then lastly, the sacrifice had to involve the loss of blood or life of the victim in exchange for the worshiper. As we see, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It clearly indicated that the punishment for sin is death to the sinner, and blood is required to atone for it. So this is what the Judaizers knew. This is what their system had taught them. This is passed down from generation to generation. And even though it may not be the same as it was in the days of Elijah under the Roman rule, they still held it dear. To them, this is the way they were made right before God. And so for them, when the Christians came, they were teaching a new gospel, the, the way... You can see why the Judaizers would be uh, arrogant and, and, and maybe in some cases even fearful. For here was a movement that was growing rapidly rapidly, and making inways not only into the Gentiles, but it was moving into the synagogues, into the Jewish hearts in which they were leaving and abandoning many of the systems. 
and the traditions that they held dearly. But Paul is saying, even though you may feel that's what's right, it is wrong. So once again, he's trying to, in this debate, help the Gentiles see that the Judaizers' philosophy and influence was wrong and was a different gospel. It was dragging them back to the Middle Ages in our vernacular. All of this Old Testament activity, by the way, culminated with the Day of Atonement that would happen once a year. When the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, bringing, into, bringing the, blood of a, of a, the blood of a sacrifice offered for the sins of the entire people. These sacrifices, though, in and of themselves, never fixed the problem. They had to be done endlessly, year after year after year, and they were a constant reminder of the people's sin. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a temporary picture of what was coming. It was only a shadow of the Messianic atonement that, would, that they would obtain eternal redemption for the people of God. And they missed it. They overlooked it. They were blinded to the truths. Listen to what, what Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says. I believe this is on the monitors. Listen to what it says about the Old Testament sacrificial system. The writer of Hebrew writes, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the Old Testament sacrifice brought awareness of sin, but it did not actually take away because the sacrifices were not worthy enough to satisfy God's justice forever. They made one clean outwardly, but they did not remove man's sinfulness in the heart. And that's what the gospel is. Is you and I just don't need something to appease us. And that's what many people do. They make up rules, and really that's what religion is. They make rules and all these sorts of things so that they can feel good about themselves. I was just reading in the paper before church started about the new uh, Scientology um, building they made in Clearwater, Florida. A $145 million building. And everything has their regular things that they do that Ron Humbard, the science writer, a science fiction writer, wrote, this little religion. But on the fifth floor, finally, Ron L. Hubbard's uh, vision is finally accomplished. For on the fifth floor, you can finally learn for the first time how to have superpowers that he wrote about and yearned for. And on this floor is some type of way in which you can learn all the superpowers found in Christian scientists. Why? Just another way in which they deal with guilt and shame. Another way to push God out of the picture. But Paul says the gospel is too important. And for some we say, yeah, but isn't Judaism, isn't the Jewish sacrifice and the Jewish law, isn't that close enough to get to Christ? Paul says, no, 
He says, I once was a Judaizer. I, I killed people because of it. I had a zeal for it. It was my way to heaven. But then he recognizes the futility. As God opened his eyes and his heart to see the reality of his heart. R.C. Sproul writes, the idea of being the substitute and offering and atonement to satisfy the demands of God's law for others was something Christ understood as his mission from the moment he entered this world and took upon himself a human nature. Jesus came from heaven as a gift of the Father for the express purpose of working out redemption as our substitute, doing for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. Let me tell you, that's the glory of our Father. That's what you and I need to cling to. That's what you and I need to trust. That's what you and I should be sharing with others is that there's a substitute. Someone is willing to take God's wrath. They're willing to take God's penalty. You do not have to do it yourself. Hence the word, we can rest in Christ's work. No more this feverish attempt to make sacrifices and burn offerings and try to appease God by our own actions. And this is what Paul is arguing in Galatians as he warns them against the influence of the Judaizers' teaching, for it is in direct conflict with the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. Let me, let me, let me share this real quickly, for we're at the end of the message. Short one, but it's a good one. For what you try to please God with is how you will be judged. If you feel that you need to keep the Jewish law, to make yourself right before God, then that law will stand against you and judge you. If you feel, well, I can stand right before God as long as I read God's Word, as long as I pray and go to church and tithe, you will stand before God still short because that itself will give testimony against you. To live by the sword is to what? Die by the sword. Hence what he says, those who trust in law must live by the law. You will be judged by the law. Let me show you the power of the gospel is that you and I are judged not according to our sins, but according to the righteousness of our substitute. There's a great truth and doctrine in here. No longer do I have to strive to make myself good enough for God. Because we're not, are we? But yet there's many that feel that. Let me share with you this. Let me give you one last word of encouragement is you and I need to cling to this gospel. Hold dear, defend it, trust in it, rejoice in it. For the writer of Hebrews 5, 5, 9, writes concerning this gospel of a substitution atonement when he says, And Jesus, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Let the law of Christ be the law that brings us closer to Him. What's that law of Christ? It's that love. It's that moving towards Him. It's trusting in that gospel that Jesus has accomplished what God has required. Father, I come before You, and I want to thank You for that. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for that Word that shows us, Lord, that You came and stood in my place. You provided what I could not. I thank You for that. Let us hold on to that. If there's anyone here, Lord, that is still trusting themselves, Lord, I pray that you'd break their heart and break their spirit and break that, that self-will 
that puts themselves against you. Let them see their need of a Savior. Let them see their brokenness. Lord, let them see their incompleteness. Let us see that we need to have peace. And for those of us that profess you, Lord, that have truly repented of dead works and turned and trust in the works of your Son, then I pray, Lord, that you would give us that peace. And Lord, may that peace rule in our hearts. As your word says, a peace that passes all understanding. And may it cause others to see our lives and say, what's different? Lord, let us not be stingy, but to press that, that peace and that gift of the gospel and to share with others. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.